So if you are here, would you say hello? hello? Okay, good deal. You guys got real quiet there. It scared me a little bit. I was like, if you're expecting a serious sermon, we're in trouble. Just kidding. Uh, we are always serious, but we're not always solemn. So anyway, um, so today we're talking about the title of the message is a new answer. <clears throat> and um, one of the things you have to be okay with, this is the okay series. And so, you know, if you get to the end of the year and say, well, that series was okay, mission accomplished. Uh, this is the okay series. And so it's just, it's, and it's about getting to a place where I'm okay with how God does things. See, a lot of times uh, we have expectations of God. And uh, that's a great way to end up disappointed. Because God has better ideas than you do. He has better solutions than we have. And he's a little bit smarter than you. Just a little. And so, uh, so Christmas is about God providing an answer that nobody expected. That nobody was looking for, really. I mean, everyone was just kind of blindsided. The people who should have known, the smart people, they didn't know. And that's, we'll look at some of those things today. So we're, we're going to look at some things that are not the answer, and then we're going to look at how Jesus is the answer, how God answers a question that we may not have even known to ask. So I want you to think, here's, by way of introduction, I don't say that often, so by way of introduction, <laughs> I just want you, I don't want you to answer out loud, I don't want hands going up, I don't want long stories, I just, I just want you to think of the worst gift you have ever received. The worst gift you've ever, I don't want you to, to, to do it. And so while you're thinking, I'm going to tell you a story. So uh, Christmas has changed in my very short lifetime. You know, I'm, I'm 25 <clears throat> with 25 years experience. And so um, uh, when I was a kid uh, back in the dark ages, you know, we didn't even have light bulbs back then. Uh, someone just had to have a good idea for us to have light back then. That's how it was. And so um, uh, when I was a kid, Christmas Eve, so Christmas Eve, uh, when I was a kid, the way we did it was the family got together at Grandma Maynard's, and Grandma Maynard uh, was amazing. She could make pancakes that you had to eat 30 minutes to find the plate that she put it on. That's the kind of grandma she was. Uh, she's probably the reason I'm chubby, but I'm probably also the reason I'm chubby. But anyway... So we would all meet at Grandma Maynard's, my dad's side of the family, and, and get together. And this was how Christmas Eve was. Back then, Christmas Eve, you know, nowadays people get like matching pajamas and that, different things for Christmas Eve. And uh, maybe have a food fight. You have a food fight for Christmas Eve at your house? Just ours? Okay. Uh, but No, I'm just kidding. We don't do that. Uh, but then, back then, we used Christmas to buy stuff we needed. And so Christmas Eve, you got a lot of underwear. T-shirts, socks, and underwear, you know, those kind of things. And I'll never forget, I was probably seven or eight years old, and all my, my mother and all my aunts started putting on, it just got a little crazy, and we didn't even drink. We just got, we were just nuts. And all of a sudden, there was a modeling episode of underwear on the outside of clothes, and that was the best Christmas Eve ever. Uh, <laughs> fabulous. I'm burned, etched in my memory, because you haven't seen my aunts, so... Uh, just love them, but just saying. So that, that was one. Uh, second best, second best, white elephant party. All the missionaries in northeast Colorado got together for a white elephant party. Do you know what those are? It's where you give bad gifts, bottom line, and then you try to get rid of your bad gifts. And uh, so someone brought 
a urinal, a brand new in the box urinal. And there was a youth minister there. Youth ministers are insane. He traded everything he could to get that urinal and then he mounted it in his office and filled it with jelly beans. So, now that only lasted a few months and the pastor finally walked in and said, okay, it's coming down, but that happens to youth ministers, so they're used to it. So, so I just, uh, if you think about worst gifts, so today we're looking at some, some things that did not, that weren't great about the Christmas story. But let's start with just some basics of the Christmas story, the genealogy of it, just a little bit of information. Matthew 1.1, the Bible begins with this record of Jesus' birth. It says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Now, if you get into the Christmas story and you read Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy, you're going to discover something. They're different. One of them is likely uh, Joseph's family line, and the other one's likely Mary's. Family line. That's the answer that most people have come to. Now, I love the genealogy of Jesus. I don't love genealogies in general. I mean, uh, there are two books in the Old Testament that are almost all genealogies, and I skip them. Uh, so <laughs> you're like, Michael, that, you should read the whole Bible. It is all the Word of God, but some of it I read really, really fast. And so anyway, but what I, lo- I love about Luke's genealogy is he records four scandalous women in the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, three of them were Gentiles, and the fourth one was Bathsheba. You, I don't know if you know the story. David had a, a faux pas. Someone ended up dead over it, and, uh, and Bathsheba was kind of the love triangle uh, pinnacle there. And so, But you, you had these Gentiles. and What I, I love about that genealogy is that you have this record that God can redeem anybody. And I think the genealogy proves that God's heart has always been for the entire world, not just Israel. And so I do love that about it. So we'll jump in. Just a couple things I'm pointing out. Just a little bit of information here. I'm giving you a kind of a class on things. Matthew 1.17. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. So you have three 14s. Now, some of you aren't going to get this. It's okay. Don't worry about it. I, I'm only going to be here a second, but I think it's cool enough to mention for folks who like to study things like numbers in the Bible. What you see here are six sevens, or three 14s, six sevens. Seven is a number of completion. It means that when you get seven, it's like a, a week. You, get, you start Sunday, you finish Saturday, the week is complete. And so you see that number show up in the Bible quite a bit. So in Jesus' genealogy, you have six sevens, and then Jesus is born, implying that he is beginning a new seven, the final completion, the seventh seven. Now, you're like, I don't get any of that. Don't worry, there's no test. It's just cool. <laughs> That's all to me. To guys who like numbers like me, it's, I just think it's kind of cool. So I'm sharing it with you. The point is, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is God's answer to, all, to, to the, the core problem But the core problem, which is the fall and sin, is the driver of all the problems. 
And so that's why I say often, I don't know all the questions in life, but I know the answer. Jesus answers the core problem. When you answer the core problem, all the other questions have to submit to Jesus as Lord because he's the answer. Does that make sense? So the reason the, this, this particular message is important is because we have a lot of answers that we want to try in our life. We have a lot of answers that we instruct God to give us. God, I, I need you to do this, and I want you to do it this way. Sometimes we treat God not like he's God, but like he's our celestial servant. Like he's supposed to do what we ask, and then when he doesn't do what we ask, we, we get mad at him, we decide he's not God, uh, we decide he doesn't know what he's doing, or that he doesn't care. But the, the reality is God has a better answer than your answers. That's why we need a new answer. Because we think, we think in life that if certain things would go well, our lives would just be better. For example, government's not the answer. Did you, have you figured this out yet? I mean, I, I don't want to say I was advanced in the class, but I knew this like before I got out of high school, I knew they weren't the answer. Um, but... You say, Michael, what are you trying to say? Well, first of all, I'm not encouraging any kind of rebellion. Did you hear that? No rebellion. All right. I know you're sitting there going, all he does is stir up trouble. Yes, that's all I do. Actually, government is intended to be a blessing, and it is ordained by God. However, historically, it always gets out of hand. And so... Um, there are, there are lots of biblical cases on it. The problem I think we're looking at today is that many Americans, especially Christian Americans, think that if we can fix the government, we can fix our problems. And I'm here to tell you, I, okay, I'll, I'll just, here's a soapbox. The problem in America is not the government. The problem in America is that America has rejected God. That's the problem. You get America to repent and turn to God, you'll solve the government problem. Uh, but that is not only not a popular answer, that is a hard answer because it works on the correct problem, but it doesn't look like the correct problem to everybody else. So we look into where government kind of shows us it's, it's not a good answer in Matthew 2. Matthew 2, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. And he called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of religious law and asked, Where's the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem of Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. Verse 7, then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so I can go and worship him too. <clears throat> so, here you have a government official, King Herod, who is technically and politically the king of the Jews. And so he has competition. The wise men show up, 
and there's a lot of things we'll talk about the wise men in just a minute. They show up and they want to, they want, they've discovered a star. It's led them to find the, the baby that's born to be king of the Jews. So you have Herod who is up to something. He's trying to protect his position. He's trying to protect his throne. He's trying to protect his ego. He, there is no room in his world for any competition for king of the Jews. And so he did what governments do. He began to, to move and, and manipulate and, and do those kinds of things. I, I say this because we need to realize that, that governments are not the answer. They can be helpful. They can be a blessing, but they're not our hope. The Messiah is not a president, a senator, uh, a minister of politics or finance. The Messiah is Jesus, and he's coming back, and he's going to rule in a very clear way. So that gets us to asking the question when it comes to our answer. Uh, One, we need to acknowledge that if we are putting our faith in a government solution, it's the wrong place. we, We need to ask, where is our faith? I am amazed. I'm amazed by the New Testament. A few things that amaze me. Uh, there's a lot of talk in Christian circles about political involvement and what Christians should be doing and how we should be standing up and all these kinds of things to our governments. But I read the New Testament, and maybe I'm clueless. But when I read the New Testament, I don't see that. Here's what I see. I see the apostles of Jesus and the followers of Jesus operating and doing what they were called to do without any concern for the governments in which they ministered and worked. What do I mean? They suffered at the hands of these governments. They were imprisoned. They were murdered. They were hurt. And they did not care. That's what I see. That's what I see in Jesus. I see in Jesus when he is ministering, I see that his message is incredibly political. In that, he's saying there's a totally new kingdom coming. The kingdom of earth, he gave very little credence to. He spoke to the Jewish leaders. He really didn't talk to Rome at all, only enough to be declared completely innocent by Pilate. And he didn't talk to the Herod that he spoke with. He, gave him, he didn't even speak to him. He gave him no, no, any, nothing at all. Why am I telling you this? The apostles knew they had a mission, and the mission was to bring the kingdom to earth. The mission was a a new kingdom that operated according to new laws, and those laws were based in love, patience, sacrifice, loving your enemies, laying down your life, a, a set of laws that are very popular today. And they did that and didn't care. Let me, let me give you a passage that really nestles this right in place. In Acts chapter 4, verse 21, here's the disciples had been arrested. They'd been beaten up a little bit, and they'd been kicked out on the streets. And here's their prayer. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and help us hide. No, that's not what it says. Give us permission to tell them about Jesus. Give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
So they were arrested. It was illegal to do what they were doing. They did not have permission. And they didn't care. And instead of praying, oh Lord, protect us, oh Lord, hide us, oh Lord, keep us safe, their prayer was, oh Lord, make us fearless. Help us to not care about the threats of men. That was their prayer. And you know what? That's exactly how Christians are praying in China. That's how they're praying in the Middle East. It's how they're praying in Africa. It's how they're praying in Pakistan. They're praying all over the world like this. They're like, I don't care what's permissible. I don't care what's allowed. I don't care what's legal. The answer is Jesus, and everyone needs to know. Does that make sense? What happened when they prayed? This is my favorite part of this particular story. After this prayer, the meeting place shook. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they preached the Word of God with boldness. Maybe our churches don't shake with power because we're afraid of the beast. We're afraid of our governments. Uh, So something to keep in mind and pray about and know, my point is simply this, governments aren't the answer. Governments are always going to fail us. What happened in this case was the wise men split. Uh, That is 70s vernacular for they left. And so the wise men did not go back to Herod. And Herod was mildly upset when he realized that the wise guys were smarter than him. And he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first Appearance. So that was government's answer. Eliminate competition in any way possible. So I just want you to know that if you are looking at a a solution from any form of government, from City Hall to the White House to the UN, it's not there. You're going to be disappointed. Any fixes they have are temporary and will likely cause larger problems further down the road. But that last part was just my opinion. I also pity the fact that so many people's happiness depends upon the state of governments in the world. Uh, you got to get free of that. Part of being in the kingdom is letting that go. And also I'll remind you that in Revelation 19, you're going to see the end of what the the Bible calls the beast, which is an image, a figure of what all earthly governments are, just a consuming, destroying beast. And that is true. In Revelation 19.20, that beast gets slaughtered. Um, But, uh, well, you know what? I'm not going to teach on Revelation. I'm going to stop right there and just not get too far off point. My point is the governments are not the answer, and we have to know that. The other point I want to make is wise men are not the answer either. Wise men are not the answer either. The Bible says in Matthew 2, verse 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we came to worship him. Wise men from the east. Who are these guys? Other than smart guys or wise guys, whatever. They are philosophers, uh, sages, probably from the area of Babylon, deeply influenced by the writings, teachings of Daniel from the Old Testament. Somehow they studied the sky, there was a new star, and they figured out before, two years before, 
the Pharisees and the scholars of Israel figured out that the Messiah had been born. So they were smart. I, th I think the reason God hid the star was just so they would go through Jerusalem and try and slap awake the theologians of Israel. I, I think the whole point of them coming through was to awaken Israel that their Messiah had come because they were too clueless to figure it out themselves. That's just my opinion. I don't have a Bible verse for that, but that's what happened. Anyway, um, and so they, they taught and revealed this thing. But the thing about wise men is that wise men are not the answer. And I, and I point this out because America, the world, we love our idols. What does that mean? We're always looking for the next person, man, woman, even child, to throw on a stage and idolize them. Follow them. Buy their books. Get tickets to their conferences. And go and hear what they have to say and follow their teachings. If there is a teacher that leads you to Jesus and their point is Jesus, that's good. Get to Jesus. If they're building their own kingdom, run. Get away from them, even if they sound amazing. And so we need to know that wise men aren't the answer. People who talk about the Bible aren't the answer. People who talk about Jesus, is, they're not the answer. The answer is Jesus himself. And we're meant to connect directly with him and go to him. And so we see that wise men aren't the answer. The star they'd seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Wise men aren't the answer, but wise men do worship him. This is why we give gifts. At, well, I, I believe this is why we give gifts at Christmas, because the wise men gave gifts to the family. Notice in this text that they're not in a barn at this point. They're in a home. So Jesus was probably a toddler toddling around being very cool since he was Jesus, you know. Um, so they come and they bring gifts. Those gifts were a gift from God to prepare them for what was coming next, which was a mad dash to Egypt to get away from Herod. This was how God financed that trip. And so... The point I want you to see, though, is wise men aren't the answer, but wise men do. They worship God, and they declare Jesus as Lord in your life. You see, Jeremiah 29, 13 says, If you look wholeheartedly for me, you will find me. I think the saddest thing about the Christmas story is that, well, maybe it's not sad. Maybe it's just like God. That the main evangelist, if you will, of the Messiah were outsiders. They were all outsiders. Mary and Joseph were outsiders. The shepherds were outsiders. The, the wise men, they're way outside. Way outside the box. Everybody who should have been most excited about the birth of Jesus Christ, and it wasn't like there wasn't information. I mean, Zechariah had already, he had prophesied in the temple. Certainly that at least made the temple newsletter. When, when Jesus was circumcised, you had a couple of, uh, you, you had an older woman and another prophet, and they prophesied over Jesus that he was the Messiah in the temple. Certainly word could have gotten around, but nobody knew these things. Only the outsiders figured it out. So a lot of folks 
they come to church and they come to Jesus and they're all shy and shallow because, man, I've made mistakes. I've done things wrong. I'm an outsider. I don't get this church thing. You're perfect. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. We are a bunch of outsiders. That's, there are no insiders. I mean, how are you inside the Godhead, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? You're not. We're all outsiders. And so worship is the reason these people came. Worship is the reason we exist. We are here to worship God. It is a part of our eternal purpose, and it will take so many amazing forms. Wise men are not the answer, but wise men do find the answer. And they build their lives on the answer because wise men know that they are not the answer. Proud men always think they're the answer, but not wise men. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. John 3.16, for God, this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I could spend hours talking to you about what's not the answer. We could do segments on money not being the answer, your marriage not being the answer, your kids not being the answer, your legacy not being the answer, your business not being the answer, your health not being the answer. We could spend hours talking about all those things, and you're probably sitting there going, I think you're about to. (laughs) I hear you. But there is an answer. God gave us an answer but it isn't an answer like anything we ever expected. It isn't an answer that's a a document, an outline, a point, a study guide. It's a person. It's a person, and it answers the deepest questions that we have. How How about this question, a question that gets asked a lot in lots of ways. Am I alone? So many of you are surrounded by people in your lives and you still feel isolated and alone. I call it aloneness. It's not really a word, but it's one I use all the time. We experience aloneness. And and we could be, it'll happen this Christmas. You'll be with some people at a gathering, at a party, at a family reunion, and everyone will be talking, and it'll happen. You'll sit there, and you'll be enjoying it, but then there'll be this quiet moment, and all of a sudden, you'll feel just alone, and you're surrounded by people. Some of you experience that right now. You're sitting here surrounded by people. There's this, this desire and a hunger for at least a knowledge of God, surrounded by people of like mind, and you feel like no one understands me, no one gets me, no one knows me, I don't belong anywhere. Why is that? This is part of the core problem that came straight out of the Garden of Eden. Adam was not created to be alone. And and then when God put him in that garden, he he came along and saw what Adam was doing alone. Naming animals dumb things like platypus and calling (laughs) insects that flies when they're eagles that fly. I mean, Adam was losing his mind. And God looked at him and said, it is not good for this guy to be alone. And it's been true ever since, guys. We we need supervision. (laughs) In the garden, Adam and Eve rejected God's communion and God's relationship and God's wisdom, and they chose to be their own God, and in doing so, they ended up alone. And God shut them out of the garden, 
and, and kick them out. But he only did on the outside what they had already done on the inside. They had walked away from God and rejected him. That's where the aloneness comes from. And we need an answer for that. <coughs> Excuse me. Genesis 3.15. So like minutes after Adam and Eve are outside the garden. No, actually just prior to them exiting the garden and never being allowed to return. When God pronounces the, the justice upon the situation, he looks at the devil, Lucifer, and he says this to him. He says, I'm going to cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That was the first promise of Jesus, to make it very simple. Because in that text, he says, the offspring of a woman. He's pointing to a virgin birth. Very simple. And so, I just want you to see that from the very beginning, God had an answer for this issue of being alone, and that answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer. Everything that you've lost in Adam, it hasn't just been restored in Jesus Christ, it's been upgraded. You've gained infinitely more in Jesus than you lost in Adam. In Adam, you lost communion. You lost relationship. You lost power. You lost, uh, you lost righteousness. You lost innocence. You lost your relationship with each other. You lost everything in Adam. And then Jesus comes up. Jesus is God's answer. And, and, and Jesus, he doesn't just fix it. He doesn't just restore it. He doesn't even just redeem it. He upgrades it. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God. They took strolls during the day, uh, in the evenings and the mornings and those kind of things. That was their position. But in Christ, because of the answer God has given us in Jesus Christ, you're not walking in a garden on earth. You are seated in heavenly places. You're, you're not just on a stroll with God here, which is certainly available to you, but you've been upgraded to first class. You're seated, at, you're seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ right now. That's an upgrade. That's, that's not just a restoration. That's better. That's more. Jesus is a better answer than Adam. Our nature has been fixed. Adam failed. Adam had one test. I mean, one job. Don't eat from the wrong tree. There's hundreds of trees, maybe thousands of trees. And God didn't say, God did not say to Adam, this, is, this kind of infuriates me because I think people think this. God did not say to Adam, okay, here's the good tree, here's the naughty tree, and so like you choose. First of all, God's not a hipster. <laughs> There was, that was not how it went down at all. God said, hey, look, beautiful trees. It's beautiful everywhere. I want you to take care of it. I want you to be creative with it. It's yours. Here are the keys. Brand new car. Enjoy. Uh, oh, this tree right here is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> you don't need that one because I'm, I'm the knowledge. I'm the wisdom. I'm everything you need. You don't need that one. Don't, don't touch it. All the rest of them. Have at it. Get fat. The pizza tree. The hot dog tree. The prime rib tree. And here's a nasty old apple tree. 
I'm just kidding. We don't know what the fruit was. I'm just messing around. He, he didn't say choose right. He said don't. Don't choose that one. And I, thought, I mean, that's how it always is with God. 99.9% he's saying go get them a tenth. No, nah, that's not good for you. That's not what you need. So Adam blew it, and he lost his position, and he lost his nature. But in Christ, you see, Adam had a human nature, an innocent human nature. But in Christ, you have skipped, you have skipped the redemption of your human nature and gone directly to the receipt of a divine nature. 2 Peter chapter 1. You are a heavenly being just waiting to shed this earthly flesh. You are divine because of what Christ has done. Your standing before God is fixed. Adam stood before God condemned. Adam and Eve stood before God condemned. They lost their righteousness. They lost their innocence. They were in trouble. This is why human beings always feel like they're in trouble. It's connected right back to the Garden of Eden. And so that that condemnation, that position, that standing before God was lost. But in Jesus Christ, that condemnation has been placed on him and his standing of perfect righteousness has been placed upon you. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. So you have you have received a standing far superior to Adam's. You have received an inheritance far superior than Adam's. Adam received the whole world. He was a steward of the planet. And he lost the keys to the enemy. And you have received the kingdom. You've received heaven. You've received all of eternity. You've received Jesus Christ, who is himself eternal life. Just the knowing him and in relationship with him. You've received more than that. And in him you've received life. And then that leads us to the, where I began. Away from the aloneness into an experience of communion, community with God of the universe. All of this we've received in Christ. So if your question is, am I alone? Jesus is the answer to am I alone. If your question is, am I worth anything? So many people struggle with their value. They struggle with their value because they don't know who they are. We've lost our identity. Not just as a nation, but as individuals. We don't know who we are. We don't know what our purpose is in life. So, uh, to give a little bit of background on this. So, I was raised in a, a Jesus home. What does that mean? My mom and dad, man, they didn't just go to church. They were the church, bud. I mean, if the doors were open, no, no, let me back up. If the doors were locked, my dad went and unlocked them, and we went to church. I mean, that was, that was how I grew up. That was my life. That was our, our heritage. So I got to be a teenager. I don't know how you were when you were a teenager, but when I got big enough to do what I wanted to do, I wanted to do what I wanted to do. Dumb idea. Da, 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 dumb. But that's what I did. And I remember it was in my early 20s when God awakened me to my foolishness. What a joyous day that was. And uh, I remember somewhere along the way, God showed me, he said, Michael, in his own way, he said, Michael, I gave you an identity. I, I told you who you were from a young age. And you tried to be something else, and that's where all the problems started. And so, it, 
We struggle with who we are. We struggle with why that we're here. And we ask ourselves these deep, destroying questions. Can anyone love me? Does anyone love me? God help us that we find someone to love us when we're so young, we, have yet to, we haven't yet learned that our Father loves us. If we could learn that our Father loves us, it would make us less of a victim in our relationships. But that's just Michael ranting about his opinion on things. And I have lots of them. Two opinions for every fact. promise you that. <laughs> Am I worth anything? And, and, and here's how Peter put it. He said, you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold and silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. I don't know what you think you're worth, but apparently you're worth the blood of Jesus. Apparently you're worth something that's beyond precious, beyond, beyond placing any kind of value on. And that's what you are worth to God. And there's nothing you can do to stop that. You can ruin your life with drugs, addiction, alcohol, divorce, pornography. You, you pick whatever destroys people today. You could have walked all those paths. Does not change how God values you. You will always and forever be worth the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what you're worth. This is important. We have to learn this ourselves, and we have to teach this to our children. You are worth the blood of God's Son. That's your value. That's the price He paid for you. Whether you enter into the rewards of that or not, that's what God has done. You're worth what the Creator of the universe says you're worth. Not your friends, not your habits, not your mistakes, not your sins, and certainly not your accuser. That's not what you're worth. You're worth what the Creator says you're worth. And then the last question is, why am I even here? Suicide numbers are going through the roof. Wyoming's leading the pack. We don't know why we're here. We don't know what we're doing here. We don't see hope for the future. And the hope is slipping away day by day because we want... We, we want to be here for our own reasons and not, we, not willing yet to accept the reasons our Father has us here. You do have a reason to be here, and I'll tell you a couple things that it is. The first thing I want to say, and I hope you don't take me out of context, but you might. You are here to win. You are here to kick the devil's butt every day. I said that in church. It's fine. Get over it. You're here to destroy the works of the enemy in this world. You're here to make sure that his plans get destroyed. You're here to set lives free. You're here to, to, to give people their hope, to teach them who they are, to show them how much God cares about them. You are here to make a difference. The, it, the Christian church today, we should not be around wallowing in the muck going, oh, there's no hope. We are the hope bringers. If we don't bring it, it won't get here. You understand that, right? And that's our purpose. Our purpose is to, to accomplish Jesus' mission, to finish what he started. Seriously, if you look at Jesus' work, his three and a half years of ministry, it looks like it ends in utter failure. It looks like he spent three and a half years just to die on a cross, mission over. But that wasn't the point. Jesus laid a foundation. No other foundation can anyone lay other than Christ, the, the one that he laid. And that foundation has established us to accomplish his mission. 
And his mission is to bring God's kingdom. His mission is to, to save the oppressed, to release those in prison, to heal the sick, to change this world. We have a purpose. You know what faith is? You hear people, and, and, and myself, say all the time, you need to believe in Christ, you need to receive his gift of salvation. We say those kinds of terms. And Paul wrote in, in uh, Romans, and, and quoted it from Habakkuk in, in the Old Testament, the just shall live by faith. And I was praying about that, Lord, help me, help me explain what faith is. Because we live in a world that's so weird about faith. So mystical. I have faith in you. You just got to have faith. Truisms, but usually taken out of context. What does it mean? So here's what God gave me this morning, fresh off the presses. I, I, I read the story last week of Jesus sending the disciples on their first mission. He had he'd done some miracles, they were impressed, they believed he was the Messiah. And so one day they have a, a meeting. They have a meeting. Jesus selects them. Hey, you 12 guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to all the villages ahead of me, and I'm giving you authority. You have authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and, uh, and raise the dead. Can you imagine how that little committee meeting went down? How would you have liked to have been sitting around that circle when Jesus said, and here's Jesus, you know, and he's, he's done most of this stuff in front of them, and he says, okay, guys, your turn. And you'll notice Jesus has a different way of teaching than we do in the West. Jesus always gives the exam first and the lesson later. And so he says to the disciples, okay, go, here's the mission, tell them I'm coming, and you've got authority over all this stuff. Now here's faith. Who was, I, and the Bible doesn't tell us, I'm guessing it was Peter, James, or John just because they were the top three. Who was the first guy who walked into some little town in Israel and there's this lame guy begging next to the road? And who was the first one that said, you know, Jesus said heal the sick, said I have the authority to heal the sick. And who was the first one to walk up to a lame guy and say, in Jesus' name, get up? Oh, 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 better, better one. I got a better one. You ever met any crazy people? You're laughing like you know what I'm talking about. Can you imagine? Peter, and we'll use Peter because he's so brash and we're familiar with him a little bit. Can you see Peter walking into this town and here comes the local crazy nut job? Ah! Wearing his underwear and shouting at everybody. We hope he was wearing his underwear and shouting at everybody. Who had the courage to hear the words of Jesus and do what he said? I don't know. But they did. Because they came back from that mission and they were pumped. <laughs> they said, Jesus, man, the demons even listened to us. It's so cool. That's, that's exactly in the Greek, man. It's there. That's how it went down. Trust me. They did. Somebody heard what Jesus said and then had this ridiculous notion to try it. That's faith. That's why Jesus said, 
If you obey my commandments, I'll abide with you, and the Father will abide with us. Because it's when we try that we discover that Jesus is not only true, He's powerful, and He's not only powerful, He has all authority. And so, you are here. You have purpose. You have a mission. I think your mission is the same that Jesus gave to the 12 that He sent, the 72 later, and the apostles again in Acts chapter 1. I don't think the mission has changed. I don't think the authority has changed. I don't think the power has changed. I think the only thing that's changed is for some reason along the way, we thought all we had to do was know something, and we were too scared to do something. And so I just want you to know, God has an answer. And his name is Jesus. And you have the answer. And they need the answer. And that's the best Christmas present of all. Is to give the answer that God gave. It isn't your answer. It probably doesn't even fit into your framework. And that's okay. Because God's answer is too big for any framework you got. And so let's give the answer. So you have a communion cup there. These are booby trap communion cups. <clears throat> they open in two stages. You might want to check and see if you have a wafer in yours. We've had bizarre things happen. A wafer stealer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But there's a plastic wrap over the wafer and a foil wrap over the juice. I don't have anything fancy planned this morning for communion. I just want you to know that the reason we do communion is because God has an answer. And that's what this is about. It's a body that was broken to save our bodies. It was about blood that was poured out to save our unrighteousness and sinfulness. Very simple. And so what we want to do now, let's stand together. Make it add a step here. And we're just going to do that together. That's one. We're going to take the wafer that represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And in breaking that body for us, this is how God not only redeemed us, not only restored us, but upgraded us. So we take that together in Jesus' name. And then we take the juice that represents the blood of Jesus that was poured out so that our sins could go on Jesus and his righteousness could be poured over us. And so we take that honoring the gift God has given us. And I'm going to pray and ask the worship team to come up while I do. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this cup and this wafer. Thank you for getting, giving us a symbol so that we could physically touch, taste, smell, and connect with the gift that is Jesus. I ask, Lord, that you move in us today. I pray that these last two songs would be pure worship for us. And I ask, Lord God, for any life that that needs the answer in whatever way they need it, that they will come and receive prayer. 
And I pray, Lord God, that you would give all my prayer warriors courage to pray with boldness and strength. I ask, Lord, that no one leave this place alone, that no one leave this place afraid, that no one leave this place without purpose. And I thank you that you've given us all of that and upgraded us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Worship team.